This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The potential Brexit has thrown many questions into both the European and global economies, and there have been several occasions during the run of the European Union as to whether this partnership between the countries and regions would come apart at the seams at some point. Now, the also the uh, the uh, the concern is also looking at the euro and its factor into all of the issues going on in Europe right now. The author of the book called The Euro is Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, who is also chairman of the Council for Economic Advisors under President Clinton. He also teaches at Columbia University and is a columnist for The New York Times and Project Syndicate, which is an op-ed website. And we welcome Joseph Stiglitz to our show. Joseph, great to have you on. Nice to be here. Thank you. And also joining me uh, on this segment, uh, Steve Sharetta from the Knowledge at Wharton staff, who is a, a great follower of all things Europe and the Euro. Great to see you again. Thanks, Dan. Great to have you here. Uh, great jo- to be here. Joseph, before we get into the book and 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 all about that, the Brexit vote, I'd, I'd be interested to get your opinion on your level of surprise or not so much surprise as to how that vote actually went. Well, remember, it was it was uh, everybody thought it was going to be 50 yeah. 50. And uh, they thought in the end that uh, they would stay in. Um, I think they underestimated the magnitude of the discontent uh, and a kind of discontent that we've seen uh, in uh, our primary season in both uh, Trump uh, and uh, Sanders uh, supporters. So to me, given that that level of, of discontent, which took the establishment in the United States by by surprise, uh, it's, maybe it's not a surprise that uh, uh, what the outcome of the Brexit vote. Hi, Professor. Um, I'm really happy to have you here with us today. And I wanted to note that the other part of the title of your book is "How a Common Currency Threatens the Future of Europe." It's a pretty, pretty ominous title. Um, it notes that the euro was flawed at birth, and quote here has failed to achieve either of its two principal goals of prosperity and political integration. That's a, a pretty damning condemnation. Uh, and uh, it goes on to say, uh, you also write that uh, since the financial crisis in 2008, things that should have gone down are up and things that should have gone up are down. So uh, debt's up, absolutely, and relative to GDP in many countries, inequality is up. And you also note the social Pathology, suicides are up. There's a lot of suffering out there with unemployment and so forth. But incomes are down. Could you talk about the things that are up that should be down and and vice versa? Well, the the uh, uh, striking thing is that the crisis of 2008 originated in the United States, and normally you would say the country where the from which the crisis originated should be the one that. Uh, symptomatically is worse off and and ought to have the hardest time recovering and uh, in fact uh, uh, Europe is uh, we've we've I don't say we've had a full recovery but we're 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 doing pretty well and uh, in Europe that's not the case uh, there's uh, um, uh, 
a high level of unemployment. Youth unemployment is very significant, uh, twice that of the average unemployment. Uh, and uh, in the crisis countries, the numbers are unbelievable. The depressions uh, in these countries are greater than the Great Depression. Uh, Greece is probably the uh, obviously the worst example where GDP is down by 25%, unemployment is 25%, youth unemployment is over 60%. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's really uh, uh, a poster child of what uh, uh, should not have happened. Interestingly, while the Troika, the, the, the group of uh, partnership between the European Central Bank, the European Commission, and the IMF that uh, focused on getting uh, debt down and pushing austerity uh, to limit what governments could spend, uh, wound up these countries have wound up with increasing debt-GDP ratios, so less debt sustainability. And the reason is very simple. Uh, the debt-GDP ratio has two numbers, the debt at the top and this GDP at the bottom. And what they did is they shrank GDP. And if you shrink the GDP, the debt-GDP ratio goes up, and the debt becomes unsustainable. So uh, what they did is they focused on the numerator on debt, and paid no attention I, uh, to to how the policies were going to shrink the economy. I should really qualify that. They, their theory was that what they were doing would ex expand the economy, but that theory of called austerity has been discredited. It was sort of like what we tried in the United States under Herbert Hoover, and yet they went ahead and uh, believed in that policy, and, uh, you know, uh, those of us who said it was wrong, said it was wrong um, when it was tried in uh, East Asia by the IMF, uh, said it was wrong uh, in Argentina, um, have once again been proven right. The really, really interesting thing to me is even the IMF now says that those, you know, that contractionary policies, austerity is contractionary and leads to a reduction in GDP. And it's only the Germany, the uh, European Central Bank, and the European Commission that persist in uh, this kind of uh, ideological view that uh, these policies uh, would work. It's worth pointing out that, <clears throat> excuse me, the... Uh the problems that you point out in Greece and some of the other European countries, this is now eight years after the financial crisis. I mean, yeah. usually a, a recession, you know, you have some kind of spontaneous recovery after, you know, three, four, five years, certainly. Oh, but usually two years. Two years, <laughs> right. So eight years later, um, I would think somebody has some explaining to do. Uh, I'd, I'd like to talk more about the larger economic ideas that you're, that you're getting out there. But before we get to that, if we could focus just a little bit on a little bit longer on Europe um, and the austerity policies, but also uh, I thought very interestingly, because uh, this comes up a lot, uh, the idea that uh, some of the European countries, let's say in the north for the most part, are and, and Germany in particular, are are took the took a a tone, a stand of blaming the victims. And you write that Germany and others have sought to blame the victims, these countries that suffered as a result of flawed policies and the flawed structure of the Eurozone. So it's it's not just that, in your opinion, they have the wrong policies. They're actually blaming the victim of, of uh, 
of these wrong policies. That's right. Uh, and the two points in the next sentence uh, that you read. Uh, the, the first is uh, that, uh, you know, they, they say, look, at these countries were dare, uh, misbehaved, profligate, uh, and they're only getting their just uh, rewards. The fact is that uh, Ireland and Spain, two of the countries that went into deep crisis, actually had a surplus before the crisis, no deficit, and a very low debt-GDP ratio. The crisis caused their current situation of deficits and debt, not the other way around. So uh, it was so clear that their analysis of what would uh, lead to success was absolutely wrong. The critical point that I make, and this is where I differ from uh, a number of other people who've studied uh, what has gone on in the eurozone. You know, broad, broad agreement that something is wrong, as you said, after eight years of of, of this kind of stagnation. Uh, some people say it's just the policies. If only we had uh, not allowed Germany to dictate the terms, if only we had had uh, better policies. And one of my main, the main thrust of my book is, no, it's the structure, it's the design of the Eurozone itself, that the best of economic policymakers would not have been able to uh, uh, really manage Europe uh, through this uh, uh, di- through these difficulties, so it may not they may not have the, the the outcomes would not have been as bad as they have been in Greece. I mean that was a, a real policy mistake, but the best of the economic uh, uh, czars would uh, would have found himself in a situation of failure. So I think I mean just to take a simple illustration of of some the basic economic one of the basic economic problems there which which you point out so if a country is having economic difficulty there's different things they can do they can they can lower interest rates the government can spend more money or and also another common tool is to have a devaluation which may be brought on by the markets themselves right if economy's not doing well this of course is a tool that's um, that is taken away from countries in the euro they don't have control of their currency so a country like Greece a country like Italy uh, the, the the those currencies aren't going down which presumably would stimulate the economy so that's the kind of structural inflexibility you're talking about I think exactly but they compounded that with two more structural features so they took away these two instruments of adjustment then they said to the central bank you can only you should focus on inflation uh, unemployment is secondary so the Europe goes into this deep recession. And in 2011, the European Central Bank somehow thinks that there might be an increase in prices, even though the region is in recession, and twice it raises interest rates. So that shows you another structural problem. They said, oh, our mandate is, is, is just to focus on inflation. Somebody else has to worry about unemployment. But of course, uh, who's going to do that? And then they tied the hands of the countries and said, uh, you can't stimulate your economy through fiscal policy, that is, through spending money or through tax cuts. Yeah, you can't have a deficit. So they took away the fiscal instrument. So they took away the monetary, they took away the fiscal, they took away the interest rate, they took away the exchange rate, 
and they really let, put nothing in its place. So, uh, and this is what I mean when when there's a uh, when I say uh, the structure of the eurozone, the design with anybody who wanted to bring Europe to full employment would have to violate one of would have to change one of those or more of those parameters. And you point out ironically that this um, almost obsession with reducing debt and worry about inflation. Uh, which was supposed to reduce the amount of debt, in many cases, increase the amount of debt absolutely and as a percentage of GDP. In other words, exactly the opposite of what they were trying to accomplish. That's right. I mean, you know, th- these policies in many, many ways were counterproductive. Let me give you another example. Um, they, the the uh, constraints on spending were called convergence criteria. They were intended to bring the countries closer together. But when you look at the design of the whole Eurozone system, what it has led inevitably, I argue, to divergence. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, the poor got more indebted to the rich, the creditor-debtor relationship uh, got exacerbated. So um, rather than bringing the countries closer together, which was their intent, and a a good intent, they've actually moved them further apart. Uh, Another point, I think a key point in the book, is that that it's the Eurozone's having long-lasting economic difficulty because it created the single currency without also creating the institution needed to support a single currency structure, and also that the Eurozone rules and regulations were not designed to promote growth. So in the U.S., the Fed, for example, has a dual mandate, right? They are supposed to uh, take care of inflation and also be concerned about unemployment, whereas I think you, you, you pointed out in the Eurozone, there was nothing about growth or unemployment. The focus was simply on inflation. What could they have done at the outset of the Eurozone? How could they have changed the institutions to have made it work better? Well, there are a couple of things. One of them uh, is uh, the monetary policy uh, should have been more focused on unemployment and growth and not just on inflation. Uh, and here you have to understand the, 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 what happened uh, historically. When the euro was being created, there was this ideology, this idea that if only you could limit deficits and inflation, uh, the market would take care of everything, and you would quickly get to full employment. Uh, well, that idea has now been discredited, but the the rules based on those, those ideas have been embedded into the rules of the euro, so they can't easily be taken out without the agreement of all the countries. So that is the fundamental uh, structural uh, problem. Uh, the... Uh, there were other problems that have uh, should have been recognized at the beginning. For instance, uh, I was chief economist of the World Bank, and one of the things one saw repeatedly is that when countries borrow in a currency not under their control, uh, there are sovereign debt crises. Uh, the United States would never have a crisis, uh, a sovereign debt crisis. We owe money in dollars, and if uh, 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 push comes to shove, we can always print the dollars to honor our debt. But when Thailand or Indonesia or Korea borrows in dollars 
and they owe more money, more dollars than they have, they have a problem. And that was the origin of the East Asia crisis. Well, interestingly and unthinkingly, uh, Europe created that problem for itself because each of the countries were borrowing in a currency, euro, that they didn't control. They turned over the control of the currency to Frankfurt. So uh, the, the kind of institution that is necessary is some way for allowing uh, there to be joint borrowing, which is called like a euro bond, where they borrow as a group and then uh, each of the country pays back into the pool. Uh, sometimes called mutualization of some degree of mutualization of debt. Um, so uh, that's another institution that they need. A third institution that they need is uh, the countries were very different at the start, and you needed some way of helping the countries that were behind to catch up. We call those industrial policies. They're not just industrial policies. They're really technology policies. They're policies that help the transfer technology from the better, more advanced to the least advanced. And unfortunately, the rules of the Europe prescribe that kind of uh, catching up policy. So uh, they, they created a framework where uh, uh, money could easily leave Spain and uh, Italy or Greece when there's a problem. They had no common deposit insurance, which would have stopped it. And, uh, and, uh, and that, that was a force that created divergence, but they had no way to help these poorer countries catch up with the, with the better country, the richer countries. This is Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney along with Steve Sharetta here in studio talking with uh, Joseph Stiglitz, the author of the book, The Euro, How a Common Currency Threatens the Future of Europe. Uh, great to have him joining us here on the show today. Uh, so and I think you make the point in your book also that uh, just going backing up a little bit when you talked about uh, the, the inflexibility that the euro places on these countries, so it's kind of a a currency peg, and that currency pegs in general, there's a history of them throughout economic history. Uh, they've long been associated with recessions and depressions, you And crises, out, yeah. And crises in general. So uh, that may not have been the best move without. <laughs> so it sounds, like, it sounds like they moved too fast in some areas and then not fast enough in other areas for this project to work with so many different diverse cultures and, and economies. That's right. Uh, That goes back to your first remark, uh, you know, uh, where you said it was intended to promote prosperity and political integration. Uh, It was a political project, but the politics were not strong enough to create the institutions that would make it work. They sort of knew this, and they hoped that over time, as the euro worked and brought prosperity, there would be a willingness to make the institutions that would make it work better, and that that prosperity would then facilitate political integration. But you can't base a major reform like a single currency just on hopes. You have to pay attention to economic laws. Next, that was the mistake. So what happened was what many economists uh, predicted 
which was when it faced a shock in 2008 crisis was that shock uh it wasn't a, unable to adjust and that uh, set off the the euro crisis that we've now had uh for as you said uh, 8 years um and uh the consequence of that is that europe has become more divided. You know, I've been going to Europe for almost 50 years, and uh, I've never seen it so divided. Uh, the the uh, recriminations uh, between the North and the South uh, uh, have uh, been really, really intense. So, uh, the 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 it, what is clear is that it actually uh, is precipitated movements towards political disintegration. I think the failure of the euro helped create the atmosphere around which uh, uh, had some impact on Brexit, on the UK leaving. It was not part of the eurozone. You have to understand that. It was not part of the eurozone. But that kind of massive failure uh, over on the continent led, I'm sure, had the influence of saying, you know, is that a club I want to belong to? Mm-hmm. Do I want to belong to a club where one country is telling another country what to do? Not only telling them what to do, but the policies are absolutely wrong. Do I want to be dictated by by Germany? And the answer was clearly no. So I think it, it, it fed in indirectly into the Brexit vote and thus really pro- led to this kind of uh, the beginning of political disintegration. Uh, a couple more things I'd like to get into. Uh, hope we have enough time. One is that you do have some ideas of what uh, Europe or the Eurozone should do now. Um, I, I think you say that uh, right now that Unfortunately, all the alternatives are painful and costly, but they <clears throat> excuse me, could be better than uh, continuing with, with what they're doing. And you have this idea uh, of, of a flexible euro. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, um, you know, there, there are two other courses I talk about. One is uh, finally finishing the project, that is to say, putting in place institutions that would make it work. Uh, that would be the first best solution. But the politics, it's, it's not a big deal economically, but it seems to be too big politically. Uh, Germany says we're not a transfer union, which says we won't do anything where we might help somebody else. So uh, that's out of the picture. Then you could have a complete divorce uh, going back to the world as it was uh, before the euro. And that's a possibility, but there are a lot of people who feel that they've actually made some advances in creating institutions that would make a common currency work. Not not enough, clearly not enough, but they make some advances. Let's not let's not uh, 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 let's take advantage of those. So this is where the idea of a flexible euro it really says let's let's create a, a maybe a northern euro, a southern euro, maybe a German euro. Uh, you, you know. Two, three, four, you know, you, any uh, different uh, euro currency areas. Um, let's create institutions that facilitate coordination and help limit the range of variability of the exchange rates with each other. And I describe how to do that. And then over time, if these institutions work in the way they're supposed to, the variations of the exchange rates with each other become 
smaller and smaller. And at some point, Europe can say, look, that we proved that we've created institutions that will enable a single currency to work, like the United States has a currency that works for 50 diverse states. So we've gone far enough, we've mm-hmm. done it, and, and then we can make the final step to, to once again create a single uh, currency. You know, in a way, it's related to your earlier question, they put the cart before the horse. What I <laughs> want to do is say, let's pause for a moment, mm-hmm. yeah. let's try to construct the institutions, and if we succeed in constructing the institutions, and we've tested out, uh, we'll test drive it, and if it's working pretty well, then we can make that last step. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.